Well, good morning. Here we are again. I don't want to make light of it, but uh, you have all come today because God wants you here. You walked in, I know. Some of you limped in. Some of you came leaping in. Some of you came maybe even crawling in. And I know one guy at least came in a wheelchair. And there he is. But God has something for us today out of his word. And it's kind of an awesome opportunity and responsibility to open that word for you today. So I appreciate your thoughts and prayers while, while we do that. Well, first of all, I want to just say that Pastor Dan is on his sabbatical until October 1st. That is the Sunday he will begin uh, preaching again. Uh, The remaining preaching schedule, Chris Meyer will be preaching the next three Sundays. And then Brian Hansen will follow up on the 17th and 24th of September. And so that will be our lineup for the next few weeks. I've really enjoyed the opportunity I've had to to have been given to preach. Um, And as you know, what we've been doing is we've been exploring the six times in Scripture that a woman was listed or expressed as barren and then miraculously had a child. So just to review, we'll look at those six once more. The first one was Sarah, who had been promised a child at the age of 65, and 25 years later, when she's 90, is when she finally has that baby. The next one in Scripture is Rebecca, the wife of that miraculous child. It says that she was barren for almost 40 years, and then her husband prayed for her, and she gave birth to the twins, Jacob and Esau. And then the next one listed for us in Scripture is Rachel. She is the wife of that set of twins. She's the wife of Jacob. And she is barren. And we talked a little bit about that last week, that Jacob was deceived by his father-in-law and married Leah and then Rachel. And Leah had children and Rachel didn't. And so Rachel threw in a pinch hitter and... That pinch hitter had babies, and then Leah stopped having babies, so she threw in another pinch hitter, and the next thing you know, you had a husband with four wives and 12 sons and who knows how many children. It was, to put it nicely, a mess. But the, the son that Rachel had was Joseph, and Joseph was the one who, when the famine occurred, Uh, The the brothers went to Egypt and discovered that the the brother that they thought they had killed was now in charge. And that is a a very interesting and wonderful story. Then last week we looked at Manoah's wife. Remember, she's not even named. And she gives birth to Samson, who, as it says in that passage, begins to deliver the people of Israel from the bondage of the Philistines. This week we're going to look at Hannah uh, and her son Samuel and the last of the six women listed in Scripture for us that were uh, expressed as barren uh, 
is in the New Testament, and that is Elizabeth. And her husband, Zechariah, is in the temple. He's there because he's a priest and he's doing his job. And suddenly an angel appears and tells him he's going to have a son. And like all good pastors, faithful men, right, he says, how do I know you're telling me the truth? That's kind of ironic, isn't it? But the, the angel says, well, because you didn't believe me, now you will not be able to speak until your son is born. And so when he comes out, and everybody's wondering what took so long, all he can do is gesture to them because he can't speak. And so the child that's born to Elizabeth becomes John the Baptist. So we see that in those six instances, each of the children of those women uh, has a significant role to play in Scripture. Now, it's interesting that Mary, while she was not barren, her baby Jesus was born to a woman who was a virgin. And that miraculous birth tops all the others. So today, I know your uh, bulletin says this is Samson part two. That was a communication thing. I, I sent an email to Julie saying here's the, it's the story of Samson and then the story of Samuel and Samson and Samuel kind of look the same and so it happens. So we're looking at, Sam, at uh, Samuel. So we'll be in 1 Samuel chapter 1 verses 1 to 28. There was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Elkanah the son of Jeroham son of Elihu son of Tohu son of Zuf and Ephrathite there we go he had two wives the name of the one was Hannah and the name of the other Penina and Penina had children but Hannah had no children now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina his wife and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O oh Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, 
and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman, and Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The man Elkanah and his, all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, O my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who was standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there. So we're introduced to a certain man who lives in what's called the hill country of Ephraim. His name is, in the Hebrew, Elkanah. We Americanize it rather quickly to Elkanah. And I'm going to be torn today between those two, so you'll forgive me if I, if I bounce back and forth. But his name means God, that's the L part, E-L. God has created is what his name means. And we're given a list of his forebears and his fathers. And while that name and those names don't mean that much to us, it was an important way of letting everyone know who he was. That was an Ephraimite. Mainly this list is probably to establish Samuel as a member of that tribe as well. Now you will remember that Ephraim was one of the two sons of Joseph. Manasseh was the older Ephraim was the younger. And so this man was of the tribe of Joseph. Now, that kind of goes 
right over our heads. But remember, Joseph was born of Rachel, one of the six women that we are looking at in this, in this period of time. What we're told is that the man had two wives. One's name is Hannah or Hannah, and that means grace or gracious or favor. The other's name is Penina, and from the passage you would think that would mean shrew or creep or something like that, but it means pearl or coral or precious gem. It's very likely that Hannah is the original wife of Elkanah. And because she is unable to have a child, it's very possible that at Hannah's urging, he took on a second wife. Uh, the, the passage has a lot of commentaries in the Talmud and the Mishnah, and, uh, and it says there that it was 10 years that they had lived together without a child, and that it was likely at that point in time that feeling that there would be no children, Hannah urged him to marry and take on Penina as a second wife. Now that's not a normal solution to the problem. Uh, it's because supporting more than one wife is, is something that you have to have the resources to be able to do that. And El Elkanah was apparently able in this case to do that. So the plan is successful. Children are born to Penina. Now, I want you for a second to imagine yourself as Hannah in that home. Could you hear the voices of children without just a little tinge of pain? Could you sit at the dinner table and hear all the cacophony that accompanies children and dinner and not feel that you're missing out? Would the joy at the birth of another child, not yours, be less than joy? That would not be an easy place for a barren woman to live. Well, the story tells us that there's an annual activity for this family, and that is that they all go up to the Lord at Shiloh to worship and sacrifice. Now, we're used to the temple being in Jerusalem, right? This story predates Jerusalem as a major city because Jerusalem as the city of David is the place that he establishes as his residence. And that's where the temple that we're used to in the story eventually uh, gets built. So why is there a temple at Shiloh? Well, there's a very specific reason. The temple at Shiloh is there because the Ark of the Covenant is in that city. And so the Ark of the Covenant was built hundreds of years ago, in their minds, this is now several hundred years after the fact, it was the Ark that was built in the desert and carried by the priests over the River Jordan. You remember when the Jordan parted? This is a, a symbol of the very presence of God. And so it would be natural for the people there to build a temple. And now Eli is listed as the man who was the priest. That would kind of be like having the actual Nina Pinta in Santa Maria instead of a, a replica in a museum somewhere. It would be like having the actual ships. 
I'm pretty sure somebody afterwards is going to tell me that those actual ships do exist and they're in such and such a place, but at this point, I'm, I'm pretty confident that they're not in existence. Anyway, part of this worship was the distribution of portions to the family. Portions would be the part of the sacrifice that was allowable for the family to consume. And Elkanah, as leader of the family, would distribute portions to his sons and his daughters, then to Penina, and finally, it says, he gave a double portion to Hannah. Now, why getting a Big Mac would make her happier than a, than a hamburger, I don't understand. But somehow, this was his way of trying to express his love for Hannah. So once again, I want you to put yourself in this family, but this time as Penina. You have given children to your husband. Rabbinical tradition indicates that it might have been 10 sons and, and daughters as well. And yet, your husband makes it clear to you by all of his actions, by all of his thoughts, that you're really sort of just a baby mama. Now that might be a little harsh, but feelings in this area come out strong. And his true love is indicated by the double portion that he gives to Hannah. Do you have any difficulty seeing why this woman yielded to her strong feelings and provoked her rival? Rabbinical tradition, again, indicates that she didn't do this overtly. She just sort of did this with subtle digs. Things like saying, are you going to get your children Oh. Be sure to give your children a... Oh. You don't have any. Penina was a woman who longed for the love of her husband and didn't get it. Ultimately, Hannah's response was that she wept and she wouldn't eat. And it was specifically at these trips to the temple. Are you surprised by that? These two are competing for their husband's love and they're both in pain. One, because she couldn't fulfill what she felt was her duty and had willingly brought in somebody to take her place. And she's hurting. The other, because no matter what she does, no matter how many children she produces, she can't get her husband's love. And the kicker for me is that this is aggravated the most when they go to church. So how many of you have experienced the joy of trying to get your family ready for church and into the car so that you can arrive on time, or nearly so, and now you're so frazzled, so angry, so frustrated that when you walk into worship, the last thing you want to do is sing a happy song. <laughs> How many of you come to worship on a regular basis, as often as you can, and are in secret agony when you walk in the door? Because you're reminded of some sin or some failure that screams at you so loud that you cannot hear the love of God being sung and spoken. People in pain. And it says that these two women are bound together in this relationship 
And it goes on for almost 20 years. Now Elkanah, bless his heart, he tries to console his wife. Why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your face so sad? Am I not better than 10 sons? Nice try. Guys, I, I want you to know, while it's kind of painful to hear this, there's a little comfort at knowing that someone just as clueless and ham-handed as me exists in the scripture. <laughs> so the passage says that after they ate, Hannah rose and went to the temple. She goes to the temple. The presence of the ark representing the God that she is needing to talk to. And there, in that temple, feet away, certainly the temple had uh, curtains that kept the ark from being seen. They had to keep anyone from making contact with it because it was a holy relic. But certainly she could just imagine that there is, there is God and she begins pouring her heart out to God. Now the prayer that, that's recorded for us kind of sounds desperate, doesn't it? It's almost like a, a prayer in a foxhole. If you'll get me through this, I promise you. And that's exactly what she says. If you will give me a son, I will give him back to you and I'll make him a Nazarite to boot. Now there's no evidence in the rest of the story that Samuel ever was a Nazarite. It doesn't say that he didn't cut his hair or that he avoided any uh, products of the vine or that he didn't have contact with the dead. It doesn't say that anywhere, but she said that she would make him a Nazarite from birth. So while she's doing this in the, in the agony of her heart and all of that pain that's swirling around, Eli looks over at her and what's his conclusion? She's drunk. This town with this amazing shrine, the Ark of the Covenant, drew all kinds of people. And there were times that it was a very festive atmosphere. And so it's very possible that occasionally someone who had had too much to drink would come into the temple. And Eli, recognizing that, would... would uh, give them input, saying, put your wine away, stop drinking. One year when I was at uh, Vancouver Bible College, I, we had what's called a grad banquet to celebrate the, the graduates. And after the banquet, uh, probably about a dozen or so of us decided that we would go to Grouse Mountain and ride that uh, big, it's not a chairlift, it's a big tram, and then they go up to the top of the mountain and then there was a restaurant up there and we thought that would be really cool to sit in the restaurant and look out over Vancouver spread out below us. So we, uh, we found our way to the, to the place where the tram was and we're all standing around and we are just having a ball. It's, it's, a, it's a fun time, it's a festive event and we're laughing and talking and the attendant looks over at us and he says, man, you guys are wasted. And we said, no, no, we're from a Bible college. We're not drunk. We didn't, we didn't have any alcohol. He goes, yeah, whatever. 
He wouldn't believe us. So when he announces to Hannah and says, put away your drink from you, she says, no, no, no. I'm not drunk. I'm pouring my heart out before the Lord. And Eli replies, go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant your petition that you've asked of him. Simple words. And yet, out of that, Hannah is now happy. Her face is no longer sad. She eats. She participates in the family. It says that they got up in the morning, they worshiped, and they returned home. Somehow, she has been able to be at peace with what's going on, and she takes his words as words from God, saying, may the God of Israel grant your petition. The passage says that the Lord remembered her, and in due time, she becomes pregnant and has a son. Now, what's interesting is that she gives him the name, not her husband. She gives the child the name, and the name of the child is Samuel. Now, in Hebrew, it's Shimuel, and it simply means, Shimu means he hears or hears, and El means God. So, God hears or God has heard, and she puts it that he, I asked him, for him. I asked God of him. And that's how she gives him the name of, of God hears. And we know from the rest of the passage that her son is given to the Lord just as she said. And he becomes the last judge of Israel before they turn to the kings. Now if you continued reading and went to chapter 2, you would see that it's, it begins with a great psalm or song attributed to Hannah where she praises God for acting on her behalf. And if you have read Luke chapter 1, you will find there a passage called the Magnificat, which is the song of Mary in praise for what God has done for her. And there are many parallel passages. And so the feeling is, is that Mary, knowing this passage of Hannah and her praise, repeats it and phrases it in her own words later on. All right, so here we are once again at the point where we're going to ask, what do we learn from this passage today? The first thing I think we learn is that God hears. That name of the child, Shemuel, God hears, must have been a constant reminder to Hannah of her desperate time of prayer in that temple. That Ark of the Covenant representing such a strong presence of God, she must have felt she was talking directly to him. Christian, do you know you have that privilege? You have the ability to walk directly into the temple, into the presence of God himself, and make your petitions known to him. That is a wonderful privilege. You don't have to have a priest. You don't have to bring a sacrifice. You don't have to get dressed up and pretty. You can go to the Lord at any time. And the, the, the thing that's even greater is that you have an advocate there. It says that Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit accompany you to the throne of grace. The veil, the veil is torn. The debt, the debt is paid. 
the way. The way is clear. God hears. Hebrews 10, 19 to 25 says this. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, there are three things that we are to do. One, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Two, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And three, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So we have the promise that God will hear us whenever we speak to him, and we can pour out our heart before him, and we don't have to be in a temple near the Ark of the Covenant, hoping that that proximity to God will assure us that we'll be heard. We are heard immediately. The second thing that I think we learn is that we are in the body of Christ for a reason. Now, I mentioned earlier that sometimes coming to church is anything but encouraging. Just getting here can be a trial. When my children were little, I was pastoring a church start. We met in a Grange Hall that we rented, and so um, Saturday evening, myself and one other member of the church had to come to the Grange Hall and get it all set up for church the next morning. Then in the morning, we would go to church, we would do our Sunday school, we would do worship, and then we had to break everything down. And so our uh, whole morning and on into the early afternoon was taken up with church. And there were a small number of families that uh, were attending, and it was just kind of a you know, really difficult time. So Julie and I were worried that our children would begin to hate Sunday. So we instituted something for our children. Sunday was the day that they could eat, as Calvin and Hobbes put it, chocolate-covered sugar bombs. So they would pop up in the morning and they would shoot down to the, to the kitchen because they knew that this was the day that they could have a sugared cereal for breakfast. Now, I understand that's probably not the best thing in the world for parents to do for their kids, but hey, these are my kids, not yours. <laughs> and then for lunch, we would promise them that they were gonna have nachos or popcorn of all different flavors, or maybe we would have pizza and, and that, because our intent was that we wanted them to be excited about Sunday, even if we were bribing them through their stomachs. <laughs> the interesting thing is, last night I went out to dinner with my oldest son, and I, I said, hey, what do you remember? What do you remember about, about Sundays? And I'm thinking, you know, he's going to say, boy, we loved Sundays. We loved going to church. Nope. He told me what he remembers the most is that they would fight over the O spoon. 
The O spoon was a, a spoon we got out of a box of Cheerios that had an O on the end of it. And whoever had the O spoon was king for a day. I didn't even know that. <laughs> now, I'm not suggesting that we institute that here at Cedar Home. Although pizza after church? No, okay, no. But we need each other. Because we can encourage one another. We can pray for one another. We can love one another. Paul says in Romans 12, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in the spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Our standard should be to love one another just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for us. And we should expect that hurting people will be here. We should expect that when we come to church, not only are we going to be ministered to, but that we can minister to somebody. God forbid that someone would come in here today that's contemplating suicide, or maybe considering divorce, or wallowing in some kind of despair or pain, or lonely and in need of a friend, maybe desiring a deeper walk with Christ. God forbid that they should come in with those needs and walk out untouched. Let's strive to, to be the kind of church that God has called us to be. The last thing that I think we can learn from this passage is that we are not so different than Hannah and Penina. Life will bring us challenges. Life will bring us joys and sorrows, trials and triumphs. And we will find ourselves dealing with pain from time to time. Will we be like Penina? who allowed the pain that she was experiencing of not being loved to find its expression in causing pain for someone else. I think if you talk to Chris, you would find out that most of what you deal with is people in pain who are in turn causing pain for somebody else. And it's sometimes it's something that is so awful that they, they can't talk about it, they can't even think about it but that pain is, is causing them to hurt other people. And maybe in the church you have been hurt by somebody who's lashing out and they just don't know what to do and the, and the only thing they can think of is to, is to lash out at you and cause you pain. And her pain was real. And somehow provoking Hannah to tears was satisfying in some sick way. And doing it when they were about to go to worship, even more so. It didn't change the situation. It didn't cause Elkanah to love her anymore. But it revealed something about her character.
will we be like Hannah? Hannah was in pain too. But she allowed her pain to be expressed in prayer. Her pain was real, just as real as Penina's. She could have responded to the torment and it could have been just like we talked about Rachel and Leah. It could have been a mess. But she instead found herself drawn to the temple, the presence of God, and there she poured out her heart. Do you know that God wants to hear your deepest sorrows? God wants to hear your greatest fears. He wants you to express to him your soaring hopes and dreams because he has created us for that very thing. One day, all of this stuff that we see, this temporary stuff that feels so real, one day, it will be gone. And we will be in the presence of God who created us for that very thing. You remember his promise in John chapter 14? I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, and here's the heart of the promise, that where I am, there you will be also. Our fellowship with him will be unbroken. There will be nothing between us and him. We will see him just as he is, and we will feel love and deep acceptance and deep communication. Let's choose to be like Hannah at every opportunity and go to the Lord with our sorrows and our, and our pain. So let's do that right this minute. Let's pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, thank you for your precious word. It is filled with life stories of real people with real problems, real sorrows, real pain. We can relate to it, we can understand it, and even feel it in the very fabric of our lives. By your word, we can learn and grow. We can examine our lives and know you are guiding us every step of the way. Thank you for our wonderful Savior. His sacrificial, sacrificial death on the cross has broken the power of sin and death. He has made us to be new creatures where the old things have passed away. And behold, everything is new and fresh and reborn. We love him with all our hearts. Thank you for the Comforter, the Holy Spirit. We thank you for his work in us to root out sin, to bring healing for sickness, and joy for sadness. Thank you for his loving touch at all points when we are facing trials and troubles, his reminder that we are never alone. Thank you, Lord, for the church, filled with people just like me, lives rescued from sin and death, and now placed in the body of Christ to proclaim the good news of salvation, to teach the scriptures and to love one another with all our hearts. 
We ask you to help us to be your hands, your voice, your touch. We ask for patience, love, joy, peace. In short, the gifts of the Spirit so that we can minister to each other every time we get together. And may the world behold your love through us. Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.